I'm going to open up to the 17th chapter of the book of Matthew. Last time we were talking, and we kind of briefly ran through the last portion of chapter 16. Remember that we were talking about in the last section of chapter 16 that Christ taught specifically to his disciples three separate characteristics, attributes, things that are essential to us as Christians if we profess to be Christians, if we profess to be followers of Christ, then these three characteristics were essential. They could not be given up, not one of them be substituted. That was the true identity of Jesus Christ, that he was the Son of God, the Messiah, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. Number two, that he, was de- that he died and that he was resurrected, that he defeated death in his death, that he was a mighty conqueror to defeat the grave. And that in his resurrection, we have the hope of everything, okay? We, that's where we get all of our hope from, uh, is from his resurrection. Um, and then lastly, that he has called us and commanded us to obedience. And that we are to obey him in the form of taking up the cross and following after him, of denying our old self and taking up the new self, taking up the cross and following after him. And notice that it wasn't an option. It wasn't like if you want to be an A-team Christian, if you want to live your best life now. No, he said, if any man's going to say he's following me, if any man's going to profess to be my disciple, if any man's going to follow after me, he must take up his cross and lay down his life and follow me. It wasn't optional. It wasn't if you feel like it. It wasn't if it's going to be, if you want to get an extra star in your crown, then do this. But otherwise, no, all three of these were essential characteristics of the Christian. Okay. You can't say, oh, well, I believe in all that stuff about Jesus and I believe in the resurrection, but laying down my life and taking up my cross doesn't sound like what I want to do. And he'd say, well, you're no better than the Pharisees. You got a lot of knowledge. You say you believe a lot of stuff. But until I see you applied in your life, it's not worth anything. It's faith, as James would say, faith without works is dead. Okay, so you can say you have faith. You can say you believe. You can say all these things. He even would say, well, the devils actually say they believe too. And they actually tremble in response to that. If you're just going around saying you believe, but there's nothing in your life, no reflection of that in your actions, no laying down of the old self, taking it, none of that will... I'm not really sure I believe you, okay? He said, so if you're going to profess to be a follower of me, the obedience factor is essential. That's, that's, the, that's the third leg of the stool. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, okay? So then he goes in to chapter 17. And I don't think it's coincidental um, that, that this event happens in this way. I do... These are one of those events that when you're, when you're reading it across the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which um, the reason that they describe them in that way is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke do a good job of basically kind of echoing the same things. John kind of comes in with a different point of view. Um, but with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're the synoptic gospel because they all kind of coincide with one another in what they're in what they're talking about. Now, the deal is though, in each of these you will find chronologically it's a little bit just a little bit different. You know, some will include it in one chapter and others in another. Here though, you have a specific case where Christ and the Holy Spirit lays out a timetable. And every three got in every one of the three gospels there, it's the same timetable. And it'll say here in chapter 17, starting in verse 1, And after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart or separate, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah uh, talking with him. And then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. 
And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must come, or Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatsoever they listed or will. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Now, to get started with this, we have the, the famous trans, Mount of Transfiguration, okay? The scene of transfiguration, this amazing, glorious thing that happened in the life of the apostles where Christ was changed into his glorified nature right there before their very eyes. It's this magnificent thing, okay? And there's a lot that goes along with it. There's a lot we're going to talk about this morning. There's a lot we probably couldn't get to this morning, but... You know, I think that in many of the times, just as I've said, as we've been going through the book of Matthew, so many times I have read this account and it's like, wow, what an amazing thing. And then let's move to the next chapter. You know, it's like you get this Mount of Transfiguration, you get the details, you get what happened. You say, well, that's cool. And then you talk about how Moses and Elijah were there and how that was cool. And then you kind of come down off the mountain with them and then you just let's move, move to the next scene, move to the next Station. What's the next thing that happens? Where does Jesus go next? You know, and we're all kind of, again, we're, we're missing some of the nuance that is there. And there's a lot in this little short section of text. Now, obviously, it's an amazing thing because this is the first time, really, that you have in the history of the Bible where someone is glorified in this nature. Okay, now you have times where there's angels that come down and different things that kind of do that same kind of a deal. You have Moses, who, by the way, is in this picture, who got to kind of get behind God as his glory passed by. And Moses got a little, got, got hit with a little bit of the light so much that he was glowing, okay? So I always think about this like a, like a cartoon, okay? So you ever seen people in the cartoons when they're dealing with like nuclear radioactive waste or whatever, all right? And it's like it's glowing in there with that green glow and then they'll go in and then they'll come back out and the character will glow, okay, like that for a few hours. I know that's probably not healthy. Um, I jokingly say after we've x-rayed someone from head to toe that they glow a little bit, all right? But when you look at this picture, that's kind of what I get that, that God's radiant light Okay, is I mean, light is radiation, right? I mean, that is a I mean, let's get scientific with it. So you have this picture of Moses has been kind of hit by this light so much that he's kind of like, you know, glowing as he's coming down off the mountain so much so that people had to like put a cover over him because it freaked him out so much. Now, that was just kind of getting a glimpse, as they would say. That's getting hit on the side. That's not a full frontal T-bone. That's just getting sideswiped by the glory of God. And even he was glowing from it. Here are these three apostles who have no clue what they're going up for. And it's like, okay, it's another little confab with Jesus. Let's go up there and have a discussion. And all of a sudden, boom, he changes in this glowing radiance that's brighter than anything they've ever seen, wider and purer than anything they've ever seen. And you got, again, to imagine if just the side swiping of Moses caused Moses to glow like that, you got to imagine how impressively terrifying this would have been getting a full frontal, getting this full on view of Jesus in this way. And it says it. I mean, they were terrified. You know, you read across in the other in the other accounts that we're going to look at. This was absolutely terrifying for them. This wasn't like. Whoa, how cool, Jesus, you're glowing. It was like, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. So it was an amazing scene. Something this hadn't happened before. So you have here, though, it's kind of, I think, interesting that this follows just six days. Now, Luke will talk about it being eight days, and you got to do the, the math thing there about how the day of and the day of and six days in between and all this stuff. But six days later, he gives you that specific timetable. This is chronologically intact, even though it may fall in different chapters of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is chronologically intact. They went out, and Jesus taught about the... Identity. He taught about his resurrection. He taught about the taking up the cross in obedience. And then six days later, 
he told them or showed them his glory. I don't think that's coincidental. It has so much that tied back into what he was talking about. You're going to take up your cross just like I'm going to take up my cross. By the way, remember I told you I'm taking up my cross. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me, kill me, and I'm going to be resurrected. But I'm going the way of the cross. Now you take up your cross and follow me. You deny yourself and come follow me. I'm going to use terms like say you die to yourself, lose your life. And find your new life. Then to capstone that. In beautiful cinematic perfection. He takes them up onto the mountain. And reveals what the glorious nature looks like. Now what's even I think more interesting. Is what you then find in the other gospels. As you find out the dialogue here. So I don't think. And I know this by scripture. Because if you just read Matthew. You would go. Wow, so like what were Jesus and Elijah and Moses talking about? Thankfully, Luke kind of gives us the picture of that. But I'm going to tell you this. It's not their lunch that they were going to eat that day, okay? Um, It wasn't some of the healings Jesus had done previously. And Moses was like, wow, that was really cool. You know, I threw a snake rod thing down and it came back up. But look, you healed the blind man. It wasn't that. But it is extremely interesting that you get this picture of a dialogue between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. It's interesting that Peter, James, and John were able to see this. This is, again, as we were talking about when Christ was teaching about the kingdom, we talked about he's kind of just like peeling the lid back a little bit. He's letting you take a peek inside. It's kind of like pulling that little strip open near Christmas on your Christmas present, pulling that little strip open, kind of peeking in there. What could it be? Shaking it, trying to figure it out. Jesus is kind of setting them up because we know once It passes. Once Jesus passes and ascends to glory, it's like the lid comes fully off. Everything's revealed. The Holy Spirit reveals to his disciples everything about everything. And he ties it all back into the church. But right here is Jesus is teaching about the kingdom and teaching about other things, teaching about this transfiguration, showing them the glorious nature. You just see him kind of pulling the lid back going, have a peek, brothers. Have a peek. Look at this. It's going to be so cool. Look at this. See how amazing this is going to be. So, I mean, this is a really, really, really unique and amazing thing that we're seeing here. So, this isn't the only time that Peter, James, and John have been kind of the three that Christ picks out. They are the ones who are present in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're the ones that were pulled a little bit closer. You know, Jesus says, come, Peter, John, and James, you come over here and watch while I pray. Okay? And so they were called out for that. They were called at the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. Remember, had the woman with the issue of blood. And then you had Jairus' daughter, who was the leader of the synagogue. And she died. And, you know, they were telling Jesus, don't worry about it. She's dead already. And Jesus was like, no, she's just sleeping. And they were like, yeah, that's a good one. And he says, all right, all y'all get out of here. You're bothering me. And he says, but James, John, and Peter, come back real quick. And then he grabs the girl's hands and she stands up and... Okay, so these three are kind of brought in on a, on a couple of different situations. Andrew is added in Mark chapter 13 when he's teaching about the end times. It was these three who came up to him, including Andrew, and said, Lord, what's, what's the end time going to look like? What are we going to look for? So these kind of, there's some really pivotal, you know, really uh, uh, kind of impactful knowledge that Jesus has revealed just to these three, you know, one occasion with Andrew too. But these three are kind of, they were in business together before too, all right? So they're kind of like this little cadre, this little close group of people. I think it's also crazy that Peter wrote a couple of books of the Bible. John wrote a lot of books of the Bible, some really cool books of the Bible. James wrote a really amazing book of the Bible. And then you have Paul, and that's... And you got you got a very close group of people who make up the New Testament that we read. And three of them are right here. So I think that says something about them. And that says why. If you ever wondered, well, why did these, why are these the only gospels? Why are these the only letters that we read? Because these were the only three guys that Jesus took up on the mount with him. All right. So that's why they had a special, I guess you could say they were specially called out. Jesus used them in a, in a mighty way in this, in this case. But these guys were together on a lot of the cases when some really big name things occurred. So it's really neat. Now, what happened? 
Okay, so when you look on Luke's account, all right, so Luke, Luke's account of this in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, we won't read all of it, but it's interesting because this gives you the context and it gives you the picture of exactly what happened, okay? Because again, they weren't talking about lunch. So what were Jesus, Elijah, and Moses talking about? And I guess I've always, because I've read Matthew's gospel so much, and you know how sometimes you'll read Matthew's gospel, and then you'll go read Mark and Luke's, and then you'll just kind of like read over Mark's and Luke's and not really look at what Mark and Luke are saying compared to what Matthew said. Okay, maybe that's just me. Um, but I have never recognized before, I don't guess, that I can remember. In Luke, he actually gives the account that they went up to pray. They went up to pray. Now, Matthew, you kind of get this idea they went up there to have a chit-chat on the mountain. Luke actually gives the definition. They went up to pray. And it came to pass about an eight days, and again, that's the math thing, after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. Here's a word for you, by the way. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory... And spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. Now, that's an interesting text because when you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, it'll speak of the same thing. Those three were heavy with sleep when Jesus was groaning and crying in the garden in prayer. Here again, Jesus is crying in prayer or calling in prayer. This peaceful prayer scene on the mountain. The apostles are there with him. They kind of doze off. When they wake up, boom, you see this glorious revelation. Again, now, you know, maybe there was something in the transfiguration that maybe they shouldn't have seen. Okay? Who knows? But they wake up. It's kind of like this. They're sitting there. Have you ever had that kind of nodding off experience? Maybe at work. I wouldn't say in church, but maybe in work. Okay? You're, in, you're at work. You're paying attention. You're listening to the boss in a meeting. And then you kind of wake up and you're like, I wasn't doing that. I promise. I didn't see anything. Yeah, I heard exactly what you said. I heard the entire thing. You don't know how long you've been out. You don't know how much you've missed. You don't know what's going to come next. You don't know if anybody saw you. So you get called to a prayer meeting on a mountain with Jesus and you doze off. That's like kind of being in front of the CEO and nodding off in the meeting. Okay. Except this time when they wake up, which might add to their, you know, startlement. Okay. They dot off. Jesus is just Jesus praying on the mountain. They wake up and Jesus is this glorified explosion of radiant light with two other exploded radiant light guys there beside him. And you got to imagine that's got to startle you a little bit. All right. So here they're transfigured in front of him or in front of them while they were praying. And what's so cool about this to me is that Jesus is praying And while he is praying, he then enters into a conversation with Moses and Elijah about what's what's going to come. He's talking with Moses and Elijah about him going to Jerusalem and dying. It's what he's just told the apostles. He says, I've just told the apostles about my death and my resurrection. And here Jesus says, I'm going to go up and pray. I want you to come with me. And while he's praying, boom, he's transfigured. And he's talking with Moses Elijah about his decease as they're talking about it there. I think that's so crazy. The reason that I think it's crazy is because you think about Moses and Elijah. They are two Old Testament dudes, okay? They had prophesied about a lot of stuff. And in fact, as Hebrews would tell you about the great men of faith, which included Elijah and Moses and a lot of other men and women, okay? It said they were all looking forward to this day that we are enjoying. They had been looking forward to this day, the day that the Messiah would come and wrong all, I mean, right all wrongs and would save eternally and would deliver forever and would establish the kingdom. They were looking forward to that day. And it says they all died looking forward to that day. They all died and they never saw it. They had a hope. They had the faith that God had given them. They could see it, see it, but they could not touch it. And it wasn't tangible to them like it is to us. Okay. But this picture that you get here 
Now these guys are sitting there. The ones that had been hoping for this their entire lives. Hoping for this day. Hoping and looking forward to the day. Thinking maybe today, maybe in my lifetime, the Messiah was going to come. They all died waiting for that. Never saw it. And here they are talking with Jesus about it. I just think that's that's amazing. I just think that's the most amazing thing out of all this this story that I have read over and over again and I reread it this time. The most amazing thing that stuck out to me in all of it was that here is Moses and Elijah, these guys who had been super heroes of faith in that way. That through all that they had gone through, all that they had been through, all that they had suffered for God. And it says they were just hoping for this day. And here you get to, they're, they're chatting about it with Jesus. Talking about his coming decease. I mean, I just, I think that's an amazing testimony to what this, what Christ is trying to show his apostles in this moment. And so there's three things that I really grabbed out that I thought were, were kind of important or that I think that you kind of can grab from this situation. And some things I think that were the reason why this is put in here, why he was bringing up these three apostles, why he wanted them to see this. He did kind of say at the end of chapter 16, there's a verse there that everybody gets kind of, what does that mean? And that is the one where it says in verse 28, that there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they shall see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, So there's all this kind of back and forth about that because, you know, obviously all these people are dead. Most of the time, those kind of allusions of the things they're talking about are talking about the end times. In fact, in 27, he talks about how when he comes in the glory of his fathers with his angels and he shall reward every man according to his works. All right. That's the same thing that you see multiple other times referring to end times coming back and the judgment. Okay, but then he gives this verse 28 deal and you say, well, how in the world can there be people that are alive at this point who are still alive then when that thing hasn't happened yet? Obviously. Verse 28 is not talking about that. Verse 28 is talking about the coming of his kingdom and seeing the Son of Man in his kingdom. Now, some people, because the transfiguration comes right after this, will go, well, this was part of that. Okay, There were some that saw Jesus in all of his full glory in his kingdom that no one else saw. Okay, No one else got to see this transfigured Christ. All right. So that's part of it. I think you could go with that and that wouldn't necessarily ruffle my feathers at all. I think that probably the fact that they saw Jesus come at the last times in in Acts chapter one, right before the church got started. I think in my own personal opinion, that's when that verse is fulfilled, that there are those that are standing there who saw that fulfilled at that point in time. Okay. All that being said, this was kind of the main three points I think that are taught by this transfiguration scene. Number one, it was to reveal Jesus in his true identity. Okay. So he's just talked with them in chapter 16 and said, who am I? And they say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, all right, Peter, come with me on a mountain. Let me show you what that means. Let me show you what my true identity looks like. Let me show you what the glorified son of God looks like. I'm in a tabernacle right now. I'm in this Jesus tabernacle, this fleshly thing. But let me pull the lid back and show you my true, true identity. Because Peter named him right. Peter was the one that stood up there and boldly said, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, okay, you know, I give you props to you, Peter. Like now come up on the mountain. Let me show you what that looks like. Why is that important to us? Why is that important to us? Again, we go back to you can have a theological, historical view of the man, Jesus. And you can say, what a great guy. Man, he was such a good guy. Look at all the nice things he did. Look how he never spoke a coarse word to anyone. Look how he died for a group. I mean, that was just such a nice guy. We do not survive off of a theological, historical view of Jesus. We survive off the real identity of Jesus. The glorified Son of God view of Jesus. 
That's how we survive. Historical Jesus is great. He was kind of the greatest guy back then. He was super nice and he did a lot of great things. But you know what that does for me today, living my life and facing hardship and troubles and issues? Nothing. I could be a good moralist. I could maybe have a good morality about me. But when unexpected diagnoses, when unexpected loss, when things crash around me in my life, moral historical Jesus doesn't doesn't hold me up. Okay, it doesn't support me with anything. In fact, if anything, it's only going to breed bitterness because I could look and go, but I've lived such a good moral life just like you, Jesus. Why am I having these problems? The reality of it is, though, unfortunately, that you missed that even historical Jesus had problems. Historical Jesus died for all of this. But this was to reveal the true nature of God, to reveal the true nature of Christ, to peel that lid back and show that he is a glowing figure of radiant eternality. I mean, it's it's. And it wasn't like he was glowing with a light that was earthly. It was the most brilliant light you could possibly encompass. It was wider, as they say, than, as Mark would say, than any launderer could ever get there, okay? No amount of bleach was going to get you as white as Jesus was at this moment. You say, oh, he was just, no, it's his, it's light. It is pure, essential light. The light that came into existence at the creation is what you're seeing here. I mean, it's a it's a fantastic thing. And he says, this is my identity. Grab this. This is the thing, this glorious, perfected Jesus Christ, this mighty, powerful God, man, Jesus Christ. That is the one that is going to hold you up when everything else falls apart. That's the rock on which you build your house so that you don't get washed away. That's the that's the cornerstone of your life. Second was to confirm his superiority. We've already had one scene where God has descended on Christ and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's already did that with his baptism. John bore witness of that. That's why John said, this is the lamb that will take away the sins of the world. But you see him appearing here with Moses and Elijah, two powerhouses in the pantheon of Judaism. Okay. I mean, two of the biggest of the bigs. All right. I mean, Elijah's the guy, you know, walking around with his cloak, smacking rivers, making them part, you know, holding up rain for three. And it, I mean, all sorts of stuff that he did. I mean, this guy was like, I, I, you can't just the, the greatest, if you're going to put it into our terms, the greatest fictional character there ever was. All right. If you're going to have him as kind of this, this great mythical thing. All right. So he was the greatest of the prophets. Now, Isaiah was pretty cool. Jeremiah was pretty awesome, but none of them ran around in camel's hair clothing, smacking rivers with ephods and making things part, okay? That was only Elijah. Now, Moses, of course, is Moses, right? I mean, we're still like making movies about him today, right? Moses is Moses. Moses is the founder. Moses is the head. Moses is the guy that got all this Jewish stuff started. He's the one that led the people out of Egypt's land. Didn't lead them into Canaan's land because Joshua, Josh, you know. He's the one. He's the guy, right? Everybody went back to him. In fact, the Pharisees would argue with Jesus and say, we have Moses as our teacher. Who are you to say that you should teach us? So these were two powerhouses in the pantheon of judaism and i think there is most certainly a a direct kind of explanation here being done by god where he is showing his apostles these guys on the side are just on the side they're not the center figure these guys were great I know I raised them up. (laughs) I made them what they were. I called Moses out of the wilderness and I called Elijah up. I gave him the power and I'm the one that swung down with the fiery chariots and took him home. I know who these guys are, but this guy is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You better hear him of all the others. Go back and grab Elijah and talk about how he was only one of two people who did not see death. And talk about how crazy amazing he was. And I'm going to tell you that Jesus is my son 
end of the story, okay? Go back and talk about how Moses wrote all those first five books, wrote stuff about stuff he wasn't even around for. He wrote Genesis, and he wasn't even alive. That's like thousands of years before him. Talk about how great and amazing and powerful Moses is, and how he endures to this day, and how his bones I had to hide so y'all wouldn't worship him. Let's talk about how crazy amazing he was. This is my beloved son, hear ye him. Superiority game confirmed, all right? Jesus is my son. He's the Messiah. And like we were talking about before, when we were talking in chapter 16 about his true identity, if you take Jesus away from Jesus, if you take who he is as the son of God away from him, then John 3, 16 doesn't make sense anymore. Well, I sent my only beloved son to die that whosoever should believe in him shall have eternal life. I mean, that's gone. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to bring Moses back to do it because I gave him an opportunity first time. He didn't do it. I'm going to give him. No, I'm going to bring Elijah up. He was so cool. Let him smack some hats on some rivers again and we'll see some cool stuff and let him die for you. He says both of them could die as many times as they want to. It's never going to accomplish anything. In fact, they've already died once. Didn't do anything then. Except Elijah, we know. Chariots of fire, all right? The actual chariots of fire, not the scene of the running movie and all that stuff. This, these, these two guys were amazing. But there's only one guy in this picture who is the preeminent, who's the superior, who is the only begotten son of God. So he says, hear him. Don't make tabernacles to all three of them because then you're putting all three of them on the same playing field. And I'm telling you that they aren't on the same playing field by any means. You know, there's two ways you can view this. You can either view this that Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus about his death and they're kind of having a little one-on-one conversation. Or you can hear Jesus actually talking to them saying, this is what's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's, it's so... It's just so cool, but in in addition to that, it's so confirming of who Christ was. This is the second time that God has spoken in this manner. And this time, so I mean, if as we saw in Luke, if you wanted to get even more terrifying, you're already terrified because everything's glowing and burning and you can't even look at them and it's an amazing scene just in that. All of a sudden, this glorious cloud of God appears over them and God speaks out of it with this booming, terrifying voice going, this is my son, hear ye him. Now, the words and the description of that glorious cloud that God spoke out of are are almost identical to the Shekinah glory cloud that dwelt over the tabernacle. So God, when the tabernacle, you remember, we've been talking about it for a good long while. You remember how nobody could really get into that inner sanctum? Everybody could see it from outside kind of burning down through the tent top. But nobody got into the Shekinah glory, the center portion, except the high priest with a lot of smoke and a lot of eyes down and a lot of not looking at it or else you die kind of a thing. And here all of a sudden you're sitting on a mountain. There's no tabernacle. There's no sacrifices. There's no special garments. There's no pomegranates, whatever they were supposed to do. There's none of that. You're sitting there looking at Jesus going... I'm so scared. I'm scared out of my mind. And then all of a sudden, boom, the Shekinah glory sits over you and goes, you guys better listen to my son. And I guess see everybody going, ah, and falling on the ground. I mean, this is not a trivial scene. This is like the full weight of the Godhead exploding in your face. So it's this beautiful, magnificent, terrifying picture. And in addition to that, thirdly, I think it gives you a picture, a glimpse, maybe not. I, I, I don't know. I don't say that it's not intentional, but I don't act like it is intentional because I'm not 100% sure. But you get a glimpse into the mystery of the eternal from this. What have Moses and Elijah been doing for the last couple of centuries? Where did they go when they died? What happens to your body after you died? You turn into an amorphous blob that doesn't know anything? Or are you still you having to be able to get a conversation going with Jesus about future events? You say, oh, this was a special case. I don't think so. I think this is the reality. That's why it happened. Well, and Jesus was like, hey, you know what? For a cool trick, boom, boom. There you go. Moses and Elijah. There you go. Brought them back. Really, they were just like floating blobs in heaven. But I restored them just for you to see this and... 
No, they were there. They were real. They were tangible. What's interesting, and you may have heard this, you may not have heard this, you may not care about this, but there's actually, there's like a vein of thought that people think that the Old Testament saints, when they died, they were gathered to Abraham's bosom, okay? Because it says that, all right? There's a phrase, there's a gathered to Abraham's bosom, I'll go on to Abraham's bosom. That is a Jewish idiom to speak of heaven, you know, going to be with God, who they called Abraham father, big, big Abraham, okay, big father, God, all right? So in that way, they use this kind of analogy of going to Abraham's bosom, all right? And in fact, when you look in the New Testament and you look in Luke chapter 16, you'll have the parable of Lazarus, the poor man Lazarus, not brother of Mary and Martha Lazarus, the poor man Lazarus who dies, okay? And it says that when he dies, he was gathered to Abraham's bosom, okay? So they have this idea that the Old Testament saints either before Christ or until the resurrection day are gathered to Abraham's bosom and all the Gentiles and all of us go to another place, okay? So that we go to heaven, they go to Abraham's bosom. We're kind of separated. I guess there's a wall of partition still in heaven, even though Ephesians says there's not. Don't know how that works. But anyway, that's the idea is that they're gathered to Abraham's bosom, okay, which is a separate place than where we will go because we're dirty, filthy, infidel Gentiles. We don't go to Abraham, all right? But this picture right here, you know what this tells me? That ain't the case. That tells me that wherever Jesus was in eternity, obviously Moses and Elijah were there because here they are having confabs about what's about to happen. Now, what's even more, I think, and again, this would be, okay, Bible here, stepping over here. This is, you know, kind of what's here in the scripture. This is me talking. If Moses and Elijah are able to be physically represented here and have a discussion with Jesus about future events, then I think all of the saints that have gone before us are there in the same bodily fashion. And you notice how Moses wasn't talking about his wife to Elijah and Elijah wasn't talking about, hey man, do you remember when the chariots of fire came and got me and all this stuff? They're talking to Jesus, about Jesus, for the things that Jesus is going to do. And I feel like in the same vein, same fashion, when we are delivered from this world to go be with Jesus. It's the same thing. Maybe we're all gathered around the throne praising God and talking to Jesus about when he's going to come back and get the rest of us. Again, that may be speculation, but I don't think, I don't believe that we go up there, as others have said, to get stupid. I don't believe we go up there and we don't know who we're talking with. I'm not sure. That would mean that Moses is standing across from Elijah talking to Jesus going, Hey, who's this cat? I don't know who he is. No, Moses and Elijah were like, Well, hey, buddy, you know, a couple hundred years apart. What's going on? How's it been? Eternity? Great. I love it. Let's talk to Jesus about his crucifixion. Let's talk to Jesus about the event we've been hoping for for centuries. Let's talk to Jesus about this amazing time when he's going to die and save us and pay for us and all these things. That's that's the beautiful picture we get from this. So it's not just amazing, crazy glory blowing people's eyeballs out. It's this sweet, sweet hope that if we see these two in the same capacity, that that's how we're going to be. So I love it. I think it's a beautiful picture. So now, as he gives him the kind of the glimpse of his glory, it gives us the fuel. Okay, this glimpse of his glory gives us the fuel that we need to accomplish everything he has commanded us to do. You want to know how you lay down your life and take up the new life and pick up the cross and follow after him? Let me show you my glory. Let me pull that lid off and show you the glorious perfection that awaits you and me. Let me show you the life that we are following. We're not just following some moralist man. We are following the son of God. So then you have two kind of indicators two kind of or implications actually you have two kind of implications of the glory of god and the glory of christ that we have seen in this one of them is fear inducing okay obviously we can see that one and the other one is strength inducing the first one with fear inducing we have in matthew mark and luke the accounts that there was nobody swaggering in front of god at this moment peter even wasn't standing up going Oh my gosh, this is great. I'm so glad you invited me here. I'm glad that I'm the one that you chose because you knew that I would add to this scene. And, and here we go. I'm so glad this is great. 
I'm going to write a book about it one day. No, he's on his face. Peter, the one that was always the one, hey, man, I'll come out on that water. Man, I'll cut off that dude's ear. He's on his face. And he stays on his face. And I think he actually gets even more on his face when God appears in the glory of the cloud, okay? Um, I don't know how you even do that, but I mean, it's kind of like you got the ostrich laying down on the ground and then you got the ostrich burying his head in the ground. And I'm pretty sure that's how all three of them were if they weren't just melting away and slowly oozing down the hill. It was very, very terrifying. And this is something that I've tried as we've been going through all this to kind of reiterate to us. There is most certainly a reverential fact of fear of God. There is also most certainly a terrifying, oh my goodness, I'm about to die fear of God as well. And why do I say that? Because it's evident throughout the entire Bible, okay? God is terrifying. He's not terrifying like the boogeyman under the stairs or terrifying in the sense of, of a Halloween-esque kind of thing. He's terrifying because he is the creator of you and me. He is the creator of everything that we see. He's the one that is holding our molecules together by the power of his word and could just very simply stop doing that. That's why he's terrifying. I'll give you an example. When we went to Africa three years ago, in 2016, when it was me and dad, we went to a, when we got done with half of our trip, we decided to go on a safari because we're in Africa and I've never been. And so we went. So we went on a safari. Okay. We came up at the final kind of coming out, going towards the gate kind of a deal. We come around a curve and there's some, you know, uh, female elephant standing over here. Okay. Bathing in the, in the stream. And we're like, Oh, how cool, you know, and they're probably a hundred yards away, something like that. And we're snapping pictures and all this. Well, then the bull elephant came out of the woods beside us, all right? And he was none too happy that we were getting in on his little family affair here. And he's probably like 50 to 100 yards away from us. And this is, I got pictures of it, the full out, like, you know, Alabama Crimson Tide picture with the elephants with the big ears and the tusks, okay? That's what you get, this huge elephant in our face, blowing his trumpet, stomping on the ground, saying, I'm giving you three seconds and then you're going to die. Okay. And we were kind of joking like, hey, let's get out and go pet him. And the guy, our guide was none too impressed by that and was like, hey, you did hear like last week, some guy got picked up by an elephant and smashed into a tree. Uh, he didn't go so well after that. That was kind of the picture that this guy had. So he's like, we're going to hang out here for five seconds and we're gone. And we took off when the elephant started to kind of walk up on us. Guess who was not swaggering in that moment? Any one of us. None of us jumped out and be like, oh, you don't look so tough, elephant. I bet I can take you down a peg. Because all he would do is his little tail is just whoop, you know, over to the side, we're done. You don't walk up to a 15-foot great white shark in a pool with you and go, hey, I think I got you. I think I can handle this. Come on, let's wrestle. Let's see how this turns out. You don't walk up to a 12-foot grizzly bear and say, let's arm wrestle. I got this. Because when they stand up on their back legs and then they just whop, you know, doesn't happen, does it? You are terrified in those moments. Why are you terrified? Because they're bigger than you. You are powerless in their grasp. They can blick you in an instant. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's no recourse you have. There's no amount of standing up and pleading your awesomeness in front of them that's going to make them go, oh, well, you make a reasonable argument and I see that you are on equal playing fields with me and therefore I decrease as you increase. That's, that's not what happens. In the same fashion, God is God. God is the almighty. You know what the word almighty means? Almighty. means there's nobody else mightier than him. You know what we are to him? He described us as clay. Not even like you're a grizzly bear, you're an elephant, you're some cool powerful thing. He's like, no, you're this lump of wet dirt that I can squeeze and form however I want to. In fact, how does the clay even respond to the potter with anything? Because you know what? You're clay. I mold you, I shape you, I mar you, I toss you to the side. I can do whatever I want to with you. Now, thankfully... God is not some kind of, you know, whimsical, you know, <laughs> uh, 13-year-old. I'm sorry to any 13-year-olds in here. 13-year-old, you know, like emotionally unstable, all right, whimsical person. 
He is perfect in His holiness, His righteousness, His judgment, His wrath, His mercy, His love. But He is still God. And that's why these guys are on their face in front of Him. They don't stand up and go, Yeah, hey, it's me, it's Peter, you chose me as your apostle. No, they're on their face going, Oh my gosh, we're going to die. And that was just at the sight of Jesus. Then God comes in and shines over them. So there is a fear, a healthy, appropriate fear of your creator who upholds you, sustains you. And you recognize that the only reason you're in existence is because he is mercifully allowing it. I think sometimes we miss that and we have kind of a that's where we get into kind of the. The idea that I, of self-worth and, and, and I deserve this and how can you let this happen to me because look at how good I am or look at what I've done or look at all these things. And in reality, when the presence of God shows up in every recorded account in Scripture, people are on their face going, please don't let me die at this moment. So it's a legitimate power, a legitimate fear of the sovereignty that God has over us. And I think that's important to have. That's not like some kind of you're supposed to be afraid of God and not go talk to him like your father. It's understanding he's your father. He's the one that sets the rules. And your appropriate fear of that, that he is in the authority, is what keeps us following after him in the way that we should. Yeah, he is my father. And he said he was going to spank me if I got out of line. He said, I will chasten you as my son. He's like, oh, I don't want to be chastened. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants daddy to go get the belt. It's not a fun thing. So there's a beautiful fear there. But here's the other thing that's kind of, again, it's not contradictory. It's very complementary. As you see later on, after they are falling down on their faces, after they are quaking, after they are in fear, after they're going, oh my goodness, how are we going to survive? Jesus walks up to them, sticks out his hand and says, don't be afraid, get up. You say, well, that seems kind of contradictory. Here we have this healthy fear of God, but then Christ saying, don't be afraid. Are we to be afraid? Are we not to be afraid? How does this work? Christ, I think in this moment, when he does this, is expressing his full role and capability as the mediator. Yes, you have a rightful fear of God Almighty because he is God Almighty. But let me come in here and lift you up and tell you don't be afraid because I stand in the gap between the two. I stand as the one who has given you entrance into the, into the holiest of holies in that way. I'm the one that has allowed you through the veil. Through my blood, I have brought you to holiness. And by my sacrifice, I have shown God as merciful and i think it's a beautiful complimentary thing it doesn't go out it's not like oh well great now that jesus has done what he done we never have to fear god again no we're so called to fear god but we're also called to not be afraid to lean on jesus as our mediator and that's why he says come boldly to the throne in hebrews come boldly before the throne of god knowing that he hears your prayers why because jesus is your intercessor in that way don't be afraid. Lastly, it's strength inducing. And here, we don't have time to read it all. We'll just close with it. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter will make an account of what he has seen here. In fact, he'll write his second letter to the churches and he'll say, This is why we do what we do. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. When we were made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when, they came, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also more a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. This is what Peter is giving them as encouragement. He's saying, guys, I've seen his majesty. What's his majesty? It was that big glowing whiteness that blew their eyes out on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, this thing... 
is why we have a better word of prophecy. This thing is why the word of God that we preach is powerful. This thing is why you follow. It's not some made up story. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've been terrified in awe of the Lord in his glorious majesty. And if that wasn't enough, he actually goes on in Luke when he and and later on in Matthew when he heals the son, the man that was possessed of the demon that the disciples couldn't get out. Okay, and when it is done, when he has finally when he has done that, when he has cast them out and told and, and cast the demon out, it says that everyone. When he was yet a coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. This is Luke chapter nine. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. Now that phrase right there, that mighty power of God word is the exact same word that's used by Peter to describe his majesty, which is the exact same word that's used in Matthew to describe the glory that was there on the transfiguration. Christ was transfigured on the mountain and revealed his true identity and glory to the apostles. Christ revealed his glorious nature every single time he healed, helped, and delivered in this world. So you say, well, I didn't have the transfiguration scene. I didn't have a time where I got to see Jesus in all of his glory. Every time we read a chapter of Matthew and he does another glorious thing, we have seen his glory. So therefore, as we follow Christ... We follow his glorious, majestic self. That's what gives us the fear, to fear the fact that he is God Almighty, but also the strength to face whatever we face. The strength to lay down that old man and take up the new. The strength to take up the cross and bear it in similar fashion, even if that means we're going to live a life of persecution and destruction and death. Because that same glory says, guys, the lid's off. There's a whole other thing, a whole other light. There's an eternity that you can't even believe. So may God bless us to think on these things and to remember this as we go forward.